Chapter 21 of Stories from the Trenches, Humorous and Lively Doings of Our Boys Over There. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Stories from the Trenches, Humorous and Lively Doings of Our Boys Over There by Carlton B. Case. Chapter 21, Taking Moving Pictures Under Shellfire. Taking moving pictures while exploding shells from pursuing warships and torpedo boats or sending up geysers that splash your fleeing launch and stall the motor is a little out of the run for even an American war correspondent's daily stunt. Captain F. E. Kleinschmidt, who has been billeted with the Austrian Marine Forces in Trieste, has recently had such an experience while accompanying an expedition to the Italian coast to remove a field of mines, an occupation quite dangerous enough without the shell fire. He tells the story in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Captain M., commander of the Marine Forces of Trieste, had told me I should hold myself ready at a moment's notice for an interesting adventure. Presuming it would be another airplane flight over the enemy's territory, I kept my servants and chauffeur up late, and then finally lay down, fully dressed, with cameras and instruments carefully overhauled and packed. At seven o'clock next morning, the boatswain of the launch, Lena, called at the hotel and told me to follow him. The captain, he said, could not accompany me. But he had instructions to take me out to sea and then obey my orders. An auto took us to the pier, where a fast little launch was ready. This time she had a machine gun, with ready belt attached, mounted in her stern, and flew the Austrian man-of-war flag. Not only were we well out to sea did the Botswain tell me we were to sneak over to the Italian shore and demolish a hostile minefield. The prevailing fog and exceptionally calm weather made it an ideal day to accomplish our purpose. The fog prevented the Italians from seeing us, and the calm sea made it possible to lift and handle the mines with a minimum of danger to ourselves. Two tugboats and a barge had already preceded us early in the morning. After an hour's run, the three vessels suddenly appeared before us, and we drew alongside the tugboat number 10, already busy hoisting a mine. I jumped aboard and reported to Captain K, in charge of the expedition. To my chagrin, he refused to let me stay. The first reason was it was too dangerous work, and he would not take the responsibility of my being blown up. And, secondly, we might be surprised by the Italians at any moment and, and be sent to the bottom of the sea. All my arguing and insisting upon the orders from his superior proved useless. He insisted upon my return or written orders clearing him of all responsibility. So I had to go back to the launch of Trieste and report to Captain M about the scruples of the commander of the mine expedition. I also offered to leave my servants, two Austrian soldiers, ashore, and sign a written waiver of all responsibility should anything happen to me. The ever-generous and obliging Captain M said he would accompany me himself, so out we raced for the second time, and I had the satisfaction to stay and photograph. The most dangerous work, namely, the lifting of the first mine, had been accomplished during my return to Trieste. The nature of the beast had been ascertained. The construction was a new one, of the defensive type. With good care and a smooth sea, the mines could be hoisted, made harmless, and be saved. There would be, he hoped, no explosions, and, working quietly, we would not draw an Italian fleet down upon us. There are mines of offensive and defensive purposes, such as you lay in front of your own harbors to protect you, and such as you lay in front of the doors of your enemy. The first ones you might want to move again, therefore they are so constructed that you can handle them again, 
provided you know the secret of construction. The other kind you don't expect to touch again, and they are therefore so constructed that anyone who tampers with them will blow himself up. Secondly, should the Italians surprise us, there would be little chance for us to escape. We could steam only about ten knots an hour, while any cruiser or torpedo could steam over twenty. The only armament we had was one 75mm Hotchkiss gun in the bow. There would be no surrender either. He would blow the barge and his own steamer up first. Here, he said, pointing to a tin can of the size of a tomato can, with ready short fuse attached, is the bomb to be thrown in the barge, and here, looking down into the forward hold, is the other one, ready to blow us into eternity. Now, if you want to stay, you're welcome. If not, take the launch back to Trieste. Captain M, after a brief inspection, went back to the launch with, to Trieste, while I stayed and photographed with the moving picture camera. There is a long international law governing the laying and exploding of mines, and there has been considerable controversy about the unlawful laying of anchored and drifting mines. There are land, river, and sea mines. Mines laid for the protection of harbors are usually exploded by electric batteries from an observing officer on shore. Others are exploded by contact. The mechanical devices to accomplish this are manifold. The policy adhered to is usually to construct a mine so as to incur the least danger when handling them to yourself and with the opposite results to your enemy. This holds true as long as the secret of construction can be kept from the enemy. The Italians on a night invasion had dropped mines on the Austrian coast that would explode when tilted only at an angle of 25 degrees. A little vial of acid would spill over and explode the charge. One day, when a heavy sea was running, some of the mines exploded, betraying the location of the minefield, and the Austrians killed the rest of them with minesweepers. Minefields are discovered by shallow draft steamers looking for them in clear water or dragging for them. The aeroplane is also an excellent scout. From a height of 1,000 feet, he can look a good depth into the sea and see a mine or submarine. On my flight over Grado, on the Italian coast, I could see a minefield and all shallows of a channel wonderfully well from a height of 6,000 feet. When the hydroplane sees a mine, an automatic float is dropped that marks the locality, and the mine's boat comes along and either lifts it or blows it up. Here, these Italian mines were of a late and very expensive construction. They consisted of three parts, the mine, the anchor, and a 100-pound weight, all three connected to a wire cable. The weight is an ordinary oval lump of iron, attached by a cable to the anchor. The anchor is a steel cylinder. The upper part is perforated. The lower half is a tank with a hole in the bottom and sides to allow the water to enter and sink it. The mine is a globe two and one-half feet in diameter, which fits into the barrel-like anchor up to its equator. The weight, cable, and anchor holding the mine are rolled from the mine-laying ship overboard. The weight sinks to the bottom, holding the mine in the spot. Next, the water entering the tank slowly fills it, and it sinks at the designated place. The mine, being buoyant, has detached itself from the sinking anchor, and is pulled down with the anchor and floats now at a depth of 8 to 12 feet from the surface. The water now dissolves a peculiar kind of cement that has held a number of pistons. The pistons, being released, spring out and snap in place all around the equator of the mine. Comes a vessel in contact with the mine, these protruding points, made of brittle metal, break off and a spring releases a cartridge with explosive. This cartridge, with a detonating cap on the bottom, drops upon a point and explodes the initial charge, which again explodes the charge in the mine. 
In lifting the mine, a robo with three men rose up over the mine, and by means of a tube shutting off the refraction of the light rays, a person can look into the water. With the boat hook and attached rope, a shackle on top of the mine is caught. The pole unscrewed, the rope is taken into a winch aboard the steamer or barge, and the mine is then carefully hoisted. When the mine comes to the surface, the mine engineer rows up, presses down a lever, and secures it with a steel pin. This performance locks the spring and prevents the cartridge from dropping on the piston. Next, the mine is hoisted on the barge, the top is unscrewed, and the cartridge holding the initial explosive charge is taken out, rendering the mine harmless with ordinary handling. The cylinder-like anchor is then hoisted by the attached cable, and the last weight is brought up. We were busy hoisting and searching for mines till 3 p.m. Another tugboat, the San Marco, was also steaming around in our vicinity, keeping a sharp lookout for hostile men of war, and also, when seeing a mine, dropping afloat. The fog had lifted a little, and once in a while we could see the outlines of houses on the shore. We had six mines on the barge and three on our steamer, when the launch which had taken me out hove in sight to take me back for dinner. Captain K said, Well, we've been lucky so far. We only have one more mine to take up, and I had a good mind to blow it up and hike for home. Good, I said. Then I'll unpack my cameras again and take a picture of the explosion. At this moment, the San Marco gave a signal of three short blasts. I looked toward the Italian coast and saw two men of war loom up in the fog, then two more. Two had four funnels each and were cruisers. The other two were torpedo boat destroyers. Enemy in sight. Clear the ship. Jump aboard. Cut the barge adrift. Came in sharp commands from Captain K. Six men at the windlass were lowering the mine carefully onto the deck of the barge. They let it drop so suddenly that the men guiding it jumped aside in terror. All hands jumped from the barge aboard our steamer. The ropes holding the barge alongside were cut. The bells clanged in the engine room and we shot ahead. Fog had momentarily blotted the vessels out again and gave a false sense of security. Make the towing hawser fast. We'll tow her, shouted Kay. Three men tried to belay the hawser, but we had too much headway on already, and the rope tore through their fingers. Throw the bomb into her. The bomb flew across, but fell short. Then I saw a flash of lightning in the fog, and the next moment a huge fountain of water rose on our starboard side, and the shell flew screaming past us. Boom! 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 Now all four ships gave us their broadsides, and the stricken sea spouted geysers all around us and the San Marco. Screaming shells and soaring guns filled the fog. Twelve hundred meters, quoth K. They should soon get the range. I looked at our little Hotchkiss on the foredeck. There was no use to reply even. The San Marco had described a half circle and came running up astern of us as if, like a good comrade, she was going to share our fate with us. As she came abreast of our barge, K shouted, Drop a bomb into her. I have only one ready for my own ship, the captain yelled back. They will get our whole day's work, yelled Kay. Hooray, we all shouted the next minute, as the shell struck the barge full center, exploding the six mines and shattering it in bits, enveloping all in a dense cloud of black smoke. At this moment, the other launch came alongside and raced along with us. I threw my cameras into it and jumped aboard. Then we sheared off again, so as not to give the enemy too big a target. Next minute, three shells shrieked so close to our ears that we threw ourselves flat in the bottom of the launch and one shaved the deck of number 10. There seemed to be no escape. The Italians cut us off from Trieste and we headed for Miramar. They did not come nearer, but the Lord knows they were near enough, and by rights they should have sent us to the bottom of the first three shots. Even had they steamed directly up to us, they could have got us by the scruff of the neck in five minutes, for we could only make ten knots to their twenty-five. 
one fast torpedo boat, risking what was f a few hours ago their own minefield, and, of course, knowing nothing but the contrary, got the number 10 and our launch in line, and gave us all attention in the manner of a pot hunter trying to rake us. I had just taken my moving picture camera out of its case and set it on the tripod when a shell struck three feet from the launch, raising a big geyser. The column of water descending douched us and stopped our motor. I had to dry off the spark plugs while the engineer got busy cranking. Happily, the motor sprang right on again, and I got back to the camera and commenced cranking. I tried to keep the number 10 and the San Marco in the viewfinder in case they should get hit, and endeavored to get the spouting of the shells. I got about 100 feet of it, but it is a tame illustration of all the excitement of a race between life and death. The Italians with their speed, having passed us, now swung around again and edged us off from Miramar, so we held to the west of it for our shore batteries. All this time we kept wondering why the next shell didn't strike one of us. Then we saw one of our submarines just driving to the periscope. By this time, we came nearly within range of our shore batteries, and one of them began to bark at the Italians, but at such range in the fog they must have tried to scare them, for we couldn't even see the shells hitting the water. However, we escaped by the skin of our teeth. As the fog had lifted a little round noon, we could see the houses on shore. Evidently, the lookouts had reported our presence, and the Italians had left Grado to tackle us. The obscurity of the fog, the strange-looking barge, the San Marco, the proximity of the minefields, all this had rendered the Italians so cautious that they were satisfied to run parallel with us and give us their broadside. The last we saw of them was when they swung more and more around toward their own coast and were again enveloped in the fog. They were the same four vessels that had bombarded us the day before, when I flew with Lieutenant D, in a hydroplane over Grado. Costs more now. Adam gave one rib and got a wife. Robert Curtin, of Pittsburgh, back from the front, lost seven ribs and then married his Red Cross nurse. This shows the increased cost of living. End of chapter 21